Last week we talked about Jacob. Um, We talked about Jacob being a dreamer in the book of Genesis. We talked about Jacob's messed up family. You probably only remember that part um, if you were here. This week we're going to talk about Jacob's son, Joseph. Remember last week Jacob was promised this dream. He dreamed it kind of twice over the course of 14 years, a dream that had been given to his grandfather and his father as well, a dream of this growing family, and Jacob gets a growing family. And then Genesis spends several chapters at the end of the book telling us about how this promise of this flourishing, vibrant family somehow ends up with Exodus 1 and the people of Israel, otherwise the people of Jacob, enslaved, not so flourishing. What happens there? Well, what happens there is the story of Joseph, a story that is uh, sometimes funny, uh, sometimes bewildering, um, made into a really overrated Broadway musical starring Donny Osmond. Um, (laughs) It's my hot take for the morning, Uh, come at me. But it's a story of of low lows and really high highs. And in many ways, it just, it it heightens the lows and the highs of Jacob's story. If you thought things were weird last week, my friends, buckle up. Um, With all of that in mind, let's turn our attention to Genesis chapter 27, or 37 rather, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read and stop along the way this morning. Genesis 37, beginning in verse 1, Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as a foreigner, as an immigrant, the land of Canaan. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Let's Pause there for a moment. There's a lot to unpack even in just that. Joseph, the the first son that we meet, the first one named, that should be a big, you know, hey, this one's important. Joseph is the youngest of all of Jacob's 12 sons. Jacob has four wives at this point, Leah and Rachel, whom he married last Sunday. They were his first cousins and also sisters. Super cool. Um... Bilhah and Zilpah, they were maybe wives of his, but the Hebrew is kind of unclear. They were more likely kind of concubines, again, hashtag biblical marriage, and um, they, they were the handmaidens of Leah and Rachel that then Jacob took as his wives of sorts whenever Leah and Rachel began to struggle to bear more sons. And so this is the family that Jacob is flourishing with. Joseph is the, the youngest son, and he's sent out to sort of shepherd, not the sheep, but the older brothers, which is weird, right? He's there to keep an eye on these sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. And you might be wondering why. To understand, we have to understand the context of this story. See, what, Jacob's family was not unfamiliar in those days. Um, in fact, this is how a lot of families looked. Um, and whenever there were uh, men with wives of different social statuses, right? Leah and Rachel were of a higher social status, social caste, uh, than Bilhah and Zilpah. Um, the children of those women would also assume that same social status, that same social caste. And so uh, the children of the higher 
highest social status uh, wife would be the preferred children. They would get the largest shares of inheritance. They would get the largest shares of land. Um, and then in descending order, and any sons or children of slaves or servants would remain in that same caste, typically as well. It was a very rigid social order. And, and so maybe Joseph is there just to be a helper, or maybe Jacob has sent Joseph, his favorite, his, his golden child, out to watch these men that are twice Joseph's age because he's suspicious of how they'll treat his livestock. Maybe it's this weird social power dynamic at play even within this single nuclear family. It's, 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 well, it's uncomfortable and weird, right? Um, I can't imagine if I was one of these 30-some-odd-year-old sons having this 17-year-old watching my back. And then it says Joseph gives a bad report. That's the first thing we learn about Joseph is that he's a narc. Right? <laughs> we don't even know what they did. We don't know if he was even telling the truth. All we know is that Joseph came back and said, Dad, 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 they were very bad. You know, um, you, you don't no good. I'm the good one, right? That's what Joseph does. And, and I just... God, what a twerp. That's how we meet Joseph. There's a bitter irony in this opening as well, though, because Joseph giving a bad report about his father's servant or slave class sons, uh, that's going to sting when his own family ends up in enslaved servitude. In fact, Joseph will before his story is done. So the story continues. It says, now, Israel, this story will change Jacob's name between Jacob and Israel. He has both names at this point in his life. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children, and he had made him a long robe with sleeves or an ornate garment. Nowhere in Scripture does it say rainbow coat, right? That was invented by the King James Bible, like so many other things that aren't actually in the Bible. Thank you, King James. Uh, all it says is that in the Hebrew that there's some sort of fancy garment of some sorts, right? He gets this long robe with sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Okay, let's talk about the brothers' hatred. So here we see Jacob, whose own family was marred and traumatized by favoritism. If you weren't here last week, Jacob and his brother Esau were each the favorite child of both of their parents. Esau was his father's favorite. Jacob was his mother's favorite. And it broke their family apart for literally years upon years. It was traumatic. It was awful. And Jacob says, hey, I didn't learn anything from that. I'm going to have a favorite kid too. That should work out wonderfully. I'm going to get him a fancy robe. And the Hebrew here is even more biting when it talks about how Joseph's brothers treat him. In English, you'll frequently see the translation saying they couldn't speak kindly to him or they couldn't speak peaceably to him. But really what the Hebrew is saying is they couldn't even offer shalom to him. They couldn't say shalom to him. Now, shalom is the Hebrew word for like peace or oneness or, or wholeness, but it's also in these days just like the basic greeting that you offer to anybody in your community. It's like saying, hi, how are you, right? It's not just that they can't be nice. You know, your parents say, if you can't be nice, don't say anything at all. They can't say anything at all. They see Joseph coming and there's not even a hello, it's just a... That's the level of hatred they have for Joseph, Right? This is like seething and pouring out, and it's actually making them silent. You know you're mad when you get quiet, right? You'd think if your father was doting on you to the extreme, and he gave you this fancy robe, and your brothers can't even say hello to you, that you might be socially aware enough to, to have that modify your behavior to an extent. 
Joseph, it turns out, is not very bright. Once Joseph had a dream, it says. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. I can't imagine why. He said to them, this is what he said, listen to this dream that I dreamed. Can you imagine Joseph just like busting out in the morning? Hello, brothers, listen to this dream I just dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves of grain in the field. And suddenly, my sheaf rose and stood upright. And then your sheaves bowed down and gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Isn't that a wonderful dream? And his brothers said to him, are you indeed going to reign over us? Are you indeed going to have dominion over us? And so they hated him even more because of his dreams and his words. He had another dream. Joseph doesn't know when to stop. And he told it to his brothers saying, good morning, brothers. Look, I have had another dream, Taha. The sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what kind of dream is this that you've had? Shall we indeed come, I and your mother and your brothers, and bow to the ground before you? And so his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Jacob's going to think about this one for a while. So first he's a narc, and now he's a narcissist, right? What a good start for Joseph. Joseph just does not know when to keep a dream to himself. There's a lot to unpack in these dreams that he shares. First, there's a critically important piece that is missing from the dreams that he offers to his brothers. And he's going to learn this later on in life. In fact, it's going to be the thing that actually saves his keister and allows him to rise to the prominence that he dreams about as a 17-year-old. And that's this. Every dream needs an interpretation. Every dream needs a good interpretation. All he does is say, listen to this dream. What does it mean to be the sheaf that stands while the others bow? What does it mean for the sun and the moon and the stars to gather around and bow around you? What does it mean to rule? What does it mean to have power and promise? What does any of that mean, Joseph? He doesn't know. All he knows is he's standing tall and the cosmos are bowing to his greatness, right? Perhaps he was not ready to interpret these dreams because while they do revolve around his eventual position of power over them, he doesn't yet understand what that really means. He doesn't understand what it means to be the sheaf that stands tall or to be the one that the cosmos might bow around. It's not a position of power that he's going to end up wielding like an authoritarian king, but rather the kind of power that looks more like humility and grace and forgiveness, which at this point in Joseph's story is really hard to imagine that he could possibly behave that way, right? Because here's the thing, friends. We are supposed to think Joseph is a jerk at the start of the story. And this might be the first time you've gone back to the story in a long time, or maybe the first time you've heard it outside of the Broadway musical that is trash. Um, and... Um, I'm just trying to pick a fight this morning. I don't know why I'm doing that. And uh, uh, I'm going to find out who the Donny Osmond stands are in the room. Um, Joseph is not, a, is not like a good person here. He, he, he's not like this great hero yet. He's a 17-year-old who's super arrogant and super cocky and doesn't know how to keep his mouth shut and makes everybody around him hate him the more and more and more every time he does open his mouth. Has anyone ever been this person before, right? I read the story and I just cringe because I know what I was like when I was a 17-year-old arrogant brother, right? And no one gave me a fancy robe, but that didn't stop me. Here, here, here's why I bring this up. I think sometimes Sometimes we talk about people in the Christian 
ecosystem. And there's this like false dichotomy in our theology of, of, of people and the way that God works with and through people and the way that God loves or does not love people. And the false dichotomy is this, that either on the one hand you have to believe that, that people are, are, are horrible, wretched things and that we have to work really, really hard for God to love us and to save us from you know, fiery eternal damnation because God's so angry and wrathful. And that's, that's what humanity is, is this group of people that have to work really hard to convince God to love them. Or the other part of this false dichotomy is that like people are perfect exactly as they are. And if you try to challenge this notion that everybody is perfect just the way they are, then you're, you're hateful. And I, I understand the sentiment of saying you are perfect just the way you are. But I wonder if there's a healthier way for us to approach this to say perhaps that humans are good, which Genesis says humans are good, not just good, but really, really good and loved beloved completely as we are by a God of immeasurable grace. And, and this is the important part, that God of grace will continue to work with us and within us to reveal not only who we are, but who we are becoming, right? You have not seen my final form, right? This is what we call sanctifying grace, in, in theology, and specifically in the Methodist church. It's one of the reasons why I'm a Methodist, because I don't think it's good news for me to hear that, like, hey, the way you are is never going to change. You're like, oh, there are some things about myself, not from a self-loathing perspective, that's not healthy, but from, like, a wanting to better myself, not just for my own personal self, but for, like, the people around me so that they can offer more shalom to me so that when I walk in the room, they feel whole and one and not like, well, this guy stop talking, please. Like, I, I want to know that, that with the grace of God at work in me that, that maybe I can actually uh, change some things in myself and in my life that I know are holding me back from living the life that I want to live. It's not that I'm chasing God's love down. That's already here, but it is about allowing that love to spur us into something even better. It's not that God will love me more if I work real hard, but I might actually love my life more and find greater meaning in it when I remain committed to self-growth and self-actualization. That's what sanctifying grace is about. My friends, here's what I know. God-sized love is free of charge, and if anyone tells you different, ask for your money back and do something else with your Sunday mornings. You heard it here first. But God-sized dreams will cost us. Like where God wants to take us, that's that's going to cost us something. It might even cost us everything. And here's the really cool part is that when you know your worth, when you know that God looks throughout the cosmos and says, sun and moon, that stuff's great, but I love you, right? When you know your worth, that's when you can allow your worth to drive you into the path of humility. Humility is not self-loathing. Humility is not thinking that you're dog trash. Humility is knowing that you're a beloved child of God and seeking to become even more of who you are, right? Thank you, Eliana. I'll take the snaps all day. Um, Joseph's dream is first going to cost him his ego and his arrogance. He begins his journey by getting humbled in a big way. Now, I'm going to paraphrase this part of the story because it gets a little long, but it's real fun. So his brothers are taking the flocks to go graze in this place that's like fairly not too close, but not too far away, right? It's just kind of like over that way, far enough away. And his dad sends him to spy on them again. Like, Jacob, we've got to talk about you sending your brother to spy on his other brothers. These family systems are not working. But as Joseph is heading out there, this guy, who may or may not have been a plant by the brothers, says, oh, you're looking for your brothers? Yeah, they're, they're not actually here. They're, they're just over there. Yeah, it's like more remote, harder to hear screams. Don't worry about it. They're just like right over there. You'll find them, no problem. And so while he's approaching his brothers, the brothers begin to plot to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they say. 
so much for your stinking dreams when you're dead, fancy boy. And their plan is to murder him, to hide his body, and then to tell their dad that he was eaten by a wild animal, right? That's their rock-solid plan. There's no CSI Canaan in those days. But then Reuben, Reuben, famous for the sandwich and for being Leah's son and the oldest of Jacob's 12 boys, um, he says, hey, guys, maybe we should not kill our brother. I mean, he is our brother after all. Let's just put him in this cistern over here, and, you know, what happens, happens, right? It's like a big jug, big empty jug. We'll just put him in the cistern. Now, what Reuben's not saying is he plans to go back and get Joseph out of the cistern to take him to his dad and be like, hey, dad, look, I found your son. He wasn't eaten by an animal at all. He's right here. And this is where you might be thinking, oh, wow, Reuben, oldest son, so responsible, such a good guy. And that's where you're not thinking this is where the story is weirder, right? Because the reason why Reuben wants to take Joseph back to his father is because in the chapter before, Reuben, Leah's son, fell in love with Bilhah, one of Jacob's concubines, and, mm-hmm, and Jacob found out, and so that was a messy dinner. And so now Reuben is like, maybe if I save Joseph, my dad will love me again, right? Maury, Maury, Maury. Y'all are sleeping on Genesis, I'm telling you. It gets wild. So they're like, Reuben, great idea. We'll throw him in a cistern, leave him for dead. And then they have lunch. And then they see a caravan of merchants coming by. And one of the other brothers named Judah says, wait a second. What if we made money off of this? We are missing a primo opportunity here. Let's sell him into slavery instead of killing him. He is our brother after all, right? So yeah, they human traffic their brother out of love. And also they get 20 silver pieces out of the deal, which is like... 10 less than Jesus, so not a bad going rate for, uh, for being sold into slavery. And the traders end up selling him into slavery in Egypt. That's where the merchants take him into Egypt. And being a slave in the Egyptian empire, especially someone who is bought and sold by like, these traveling merchants, that's like as close to a death sentence as you can get. If you're listening to this story at this point, and you're the, the people of Israel, you, you stopped laughing. And you're thinking, there, there's nowhere lower you could go than down into the mud of the slave fields of ancient Egypt. Like, to go from having a dream where the literal cosmos is bowing down to you to being sold into slavery in Egypt, there is not a wider gap. And it happens in the course of a chapter in what feels like an afternoon. That's how quickly Joseph is humbled. Joseph will then begin a lifelong journey that takes the remainder, the the bulk of the remainder of the book of Genesis, where he is maturing and learning to walk humbly in the will of God, which will eventually lead him to be this supremely powerful leader in ancient Egypt, where he's second in command to Pharaoh himself. But while the dream took moments to dream, it would take years for him to make it a reality. Now, we touched on this last week. I'm not going to spend long, but I, I wonder how patient we can be when we really feel like we've received a dream from God, like a God-sized dream, not like a dream of what I'm going to have for lunch today, but like a a dream that I want to build my life around. How patient are we willing to be in seeing that dream come to fruition, walking humbly on the path of whatever dream God has placed on your heart? Now, we don't equate patient with passive, right? Joseph doesn't just go and sit on his thumbs. No, he's going to work literally and figuratively harder in this era of his life than he ever has before. But there's something about painstaking patience that allows dreams to take shape and to be formed over time. A God-sized dream does not become real overnight. Painstaking patience is key. 
It is getting up every day with that dream upon your heart and in front of your eyes and going through a really awful Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday to have maybe a little victory on Friday and then to have it all undone on Saturday, right? Part of the, the walk of sanctifying grace in the Wesleyan tradition is it's like three steps forward and then like 18 steps back, right? The, the, the walk of faith is not just simply an ascent like this where you just see the sun and the moon and the stars all bowing down around you, but it looks more like a, a crazy mess. And sometimes you feel like you're on top of the world and sometimes you feel like you're down in the mud. And that's simply the way that the life of faith goes. And one of the gifts of patience and time for Joseph is not just humility and not just painstaking patience, but finally it's that wisdom. It's the wisdom that, he, that will come from, from both. The, the wisdom that says, hey, may, maybe you shouldn't wear that fancy robe that your dad got you and keeps telling everyone it's because you're his favorite. Maybe you shouldn't uh, share the dream that you haven't taken time to actually process yourself. It's the kind of wisdom that we'll see next week little teaser, we'll see next week, will completely change the way that he receives his brothers and his father when they finally are reunited after many, many years. The tricky part about wisdom, though, is that it only comes from experience. Wisdom comes out of trying and making mistakes and then trying again over and over and over and learning a little bit every time. Where I land this week with the story of Joseph is that Joseph first saw his dream as one of prominence. All he could see was that the position, that, that, that sort of arrival point that he would eventually make it to. That, that's what Joseph saw. But I wonder when God was looking at Joseph, if God saw the humility and the patience and the wisdom that would form his character and make him the kind of ruler that could stand tall when all the other sheaves were bowing down. The, the, the kind of leader that, that could stay strong when it felt like the cosmos was falling apart. I, I think that sometimes we tend to view our dreams through what we feel God is leading us to do, and yet I wonder if God's dreams for us are really about who we are becoming. We tend to overemphasize the stuff that we do because we think that's what gives us value, that's what makes us worth in the world. But I don't think that's how God sees us. I don't think that's how God sees dreams. I think God's dream for me and for you and for Joseph has more to do with what's happening in here that then will naturally spill out into the world around us. And so I wonder if we can spend some time this week individually or in prayerful conversation with another person and consider not just what God is leading us to do, but consider who God is leading us to become. Because I don't know about you, I'm not the same person I was at 17 thank you, Jesus. And I won't be the same person 17 years from now or even 17 days from now. Thank you, Jesus. Right? That, that, is, that to me is the journey of faith. And so could Joseph be our guide? Joseph, this, this punk, this narc, this narcissist, this beautiful boy that becomes an incredible man, but it doesn't happen overnight. That's the kind of dream God had for him. That's the kind of dream I believe that God has for us. May it ever be so. Amen.